I've been told that there is a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> well, I, I think we live in interesting times, and we might wonder, now, why would that be considered a curse? And I think that uh, the way I understand it is that when you live in interesting times, it's very unpredictable. The forces that are at loose in the world are unpredictable and they're powerful and they move us around like pawns on a chessboard. And I think it's pretty clear that we, living on the face of the earth now, live in tumultuous times. There is a dramatic uh, political, economic, environmental, social, and religious change, unpredictable change uh, occurring that no one of us or no group of us can really uh, control. And so we are uh, kind of blowing in the breeze of change, if you will, without really knowing what the result will be and whether it's going to be beneficial for us or not. And when such tumultuous change happens unpredictably, we quite naturally, due to our conditioning, have a lot of anxiety and fear and apprehension and hope and desire. And this is suffering. It's a time when you know, the vicissitudes of life, what are known as the vicissitudes of life, are very apparent. We experience pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, whimsically, it sometimes seems. And while we might all, and do all, prefer the fame, the gain, the praise, the, the pleasure, we all also experience a fair amount of the other end of the spectrum. We experience loss and pain and blame and, you know, being slandered and disreputed in some ways. And even though we know that it is true that everyone in the room, all of us, and everyone we know, experiences all of these vicissitudes of life, even though we know that, and we know that we're going to experience loss in our life. And we know that we're going to experience being blamed, whether it's legitimate or not. And we know we're going to experience pain. And we know that we're going to you know, be seen by some or others as being less than we think of ourselves. Even though we know this, it doesn't inoculate us from suffering when we do feel pain, and loss. Because we cannot inoculate ourselves, we cannot insulate ourselves from these painful experiences, the Buddha said, this is the basic dissatisfaction that we all experience in life. And let's face it, we're living in Marin, we're living in California in the 21st century in the West, 
as bad as it is, we are at the top of the heap. Of all humanity that's ever existed, we are at the top of the heap. And we might think it's pretty... And still, we can't insulate or inoculate ourselves from feeling that. George Dreyfus is a, a translator, Buddhist scholar. He says, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it is a sense of well-being. So we have to ask ourselves, we have all the pleasure that the world can offer at our fingertips. But that's not the source of happiness, but rather a sense of well-being is. How in the midst of this tumultuous change and this interesting times in which we live, are we going to establish, recognize, and uh, rely on or have access to this sense of well-being. How are we going to do that? The Buddha had some contingency plans for the trouble ahead. And he says, it is by developing the forces of purity in our own heart, in our own mind. You know, a few months ago, now it's probably three months ago, there was a tsunami that swept through parts of Japan that just instantly and immediately and overwhelmingly, well, changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. What could any of them have done to minimize the suffering of that experience? A new house, more insurance, you know, a bigger car, more money in the bank, that, that doesn't inoculate you at all to the power of the tsunami. But it's only if you have the strength of mind, the purity of mind to bear with the way things are and are able to do that. And the other forces of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion that we would be able to navigate the terrain of that tumult with an enduring sense of well-being. Let me just remind you, none of those people in Japan thought on the day before the earthquake and tsunami that that's what they were going to be living with. And neither are you right now. But we all have a tsunami headed towards us. It might be financial, it might be medical, it might be uh, personal or social, it might be a career. But the tsunami... is coming in your life. You don't know when, you don't know what, and you don't know how badly it's going to affect you. Right? You can be sure of it. I mean, this is not a secret. This is not a maybe. This is for sure. What contingency plans are you going to make? Think for a minute. Think for a minute. What kind of person would be most resilient in the tsunami of Japan. Or if that's too remote or too near, just think about someone you know or historical figures that you consider to be 
good human being. Think of someone. Someone that you think, they're a good human being. I mean, we can think of Jesus was a good human being. Had a lot of love. Mother Teresa, good human being. Tremendous amount of compassion. Aung San Suu Kyi uh, of Burma. Tremendous amount of uh, determination and you know, speaking truth to power. And there are, you know, just dozens of historical, hundreds of historical, and in your own life, maybe it's the woman who guides the children across the school walk, who's just friendly and compassionate, that you consider a good human being. If we were to go around the room and, and, and each speak of the qualities of the person we consider a good human being, what qualities would we speak of? Would it kind, generous, loving, understanding, patient, energetic, reliable, knowledgeable, generous, live a life with integrity? These qualities are recognized universally as the qualities of a good human being. These are the qualities that are left in the mind when greed and attachment and self-absorption, along with aversion, confusion, and delusion, are removed. This is what's left. The wholesome qualities of mind. In the teachings of the Buddha, these qualities are called the paramis. Paramis means uh, the forces of purity, or the forces of purity. And they also mean the paramount, the paramount, the the best, the highest qualities of the heart and the mind. What makes a Buddha a Buddha is that as a bodhisattva, as one who was to become a Buddha, the bodhisattva chose a path of practice that would require him to perfect these forces of purity, making these qualities of heart and mind the default setting of his mind. The default setting, meaning the uh, course of first reaction in every situation. So, what does that mean? Well, we're living today with, let's see, today in the news there was the ongoing and continuing non-drama, or I should say non-accomplishment, major drama of the debt crisis in Washington, D.C. Right? Had any reactions to that? Or we've got the you know, senseless uh, situation in Norway where so many innocent people were... Uh, deprived of their life. The Bodhisattva's response in those situations, first response is patience, understanding, and loving kindness. What's yours? Okay. It, what would it take for us, any one of us, to have patience, understanding, and loving kindness as the first an enduring response in either of these situations. B, 
Because these things happen. You know, blame, frustration, disappointment, anger, rage. That's your suffering. In response or reaction to these, well, unforgivable and uh, unjust and you know, frustrating situations. But why should we make ourselves miserable? with conditions that we have no control over. The challenge for us is to develop the strength of mind, the qualities of heart that will allow us to access, to rely on an enduring sense of well-being even in the face of these inevitable major and mini-tsunamis that run through our life. We all have these qualities in our heart. We've all been generous. We've all been loving. We've all been patient. We've all been understanding. We've all been energetic and resolute and determined and truthful and lived with integrity some of the time. So it's not that these are remote or foreign or vague or, you know, exotic or, you know, for special people only. They reside as a potential within our own heart, within our own mind. And we all know that. But we also know that, you know, we don't always have access to patience when we need it, kindness when we need it, understanding when it would be useful. And so it is our challenge, our task, our journey, if you will, to a sense of well-being, to develop these qualities of heart, qualities of mind. When we identify these qualities, generosity, is that Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, agnostic, atheistic trait? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) And we can ask the same of any of these uh, wholesome, beautiful qualities of mind that that really make a person a beautiful person with a beautiful heart, a beautiful mind. They They don't have any specific religion. They're, They're actually pretty ordinary, pretty mundane. They're not exotic. They're not remote. They're not distant. They're totally accessible and available to us if we remember. But we don't remember. Do you remember when you're caught in traffic commuting to work that patience is an option? (laughs) When you read the shrill, partisan, you know, uh, political monologuing in Washington. Do you remember that equanimity and non-reactivity is a real blessing in life? We don't. We get entangled in, well, our cultural, personal, societal conditioning. And we forget that these qualities of mind are really the source of strength and resilience uh, in our life. And so, 
to, to develop these contingency plans for the inevitable trouble ahead requires a personal choice. We have to choose these values, choose these qualities as being valuable to us and then try to remember and to cultivate them. Because is there anybody in the room that doesn't value generosity or loving-kindness or truthfulness among your friends and acquaintances? We all do. And so do they in relation to us. And yet, we don't take advantage of the opportunities often because, well, conditioning. Our conditioning that doesn't uh, doesn't quite see it that way. And while it's easy to, you know, mouth uh, appreciation and uh, valuing of these qualities of mind, it is something else to choose to develop them in our life. We could say that these paramis or these qualities of mind are the obvious good choice of behavior in our life. And it takes a personal decision to actively cultivate them. But in order to remember to cultivate them, we have to practice awareness. We have to practice being aware of when the situation is ripe for impatience. And remember, there's another option. Cultivate the awareness to recognize when the situation is ripe for being angry. And remember to cultivate loving-kindness. To cultivate the awareness of when we get caught in very partisan, opinionated, shrill arguing. Recognizing that situation and remembering the value of equanimity or non-reactivity. And so what we're doing here, as we did just um, for a half hour just recently, is develop this awareness. Just developing the ability to recognize what is going on in our heart and mind, moment by moment. So that when we see you know, the situation arising where we feel a little heat or a little reactivity, we can remember, oh, there's another way of approaching this situation. There's another way of dealing with this. You know, just falling into our habitual, reactive, conditioned pattern of dealing with things, we can choose and actively cultivate wholesome states of mind, which serve us much better, actually. Dharma practice is learning to walk our talk. While we value these qualities of mind and heart in others and in ourselves, it's difficult to manifest them. So when I say that the paramis are a potential, or these wholesome qualities of mind reside as a potential within us, that's obvious. When I say that 
you know, even though we have the potential, it takes a personal choice. We have to make the choice to value them, to cultivate them in our life before they will strengthen. And then we have to practice. And we practice by remembering, as I said, that these are alternate options, another way of dealing with situation. You know, the Buddha, in his um, realization of the truth, he articulated his understanding in the Four Noble Truths, that there, in the First Noble Truth, that there's dukkha, there's pain, there's insecurity, there's vulnerability in our life. First Noble Truth. Second Noble Truth is, well, this is caused by craving. It's caused by clinging. It's caused by holding on to something. Something, someone, some idea, some idea of ourself. The third noble truth is that there is an end of this craving, and therefore an end of suffering, end of dukkha, end of pain, end of insecurity and vulnerability. And the path, the fourth noble truth, to that end of dukkha is, you know, practicing purifying the mind, purifying our speech and behavior, and purifying our understanding. These are the three trainings of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Now, we've heard of the Eightfold Path. If you've been here a few times, you probably have heard or have read about the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. You know, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right view, right, or right understanding, right thought, right mindfulness, or right energy, right mindfulness, right concentration. Sometimes these sound... Well, they're a little beyond our immediate recognition, how we do this in our life. The paramis are the development of the Eightfold Path Factors in our life. Now, you've all been, you've all come here to a formal sitting, a formal meditation training. But most of our life is not formal meditation training. Most of our life is dealing with the kids, the cars, the careers, you know, the credit cards, and all the other things in life. What the paramis offer us is an opportunity to develop a dharma lifestyle however we live. We don't need to go off and become a monk or a nun or just do a life, uh, do, do, you know, live a lifestyle of binging on dharma retreats. Not, not, not necessary. Every day we have opportunity to practice generosity. Every day we have opportunity to practice patience. Every day we have opportunity to practice truthfulness. And why is this important? Because these are the very forces of purity in our mind. And as we cultivate them and as we grow in a commitment to them, they become stronger in our life. They become something that we can rely on. They become the uh, source of inner strength in dealing with the inevitable tsunamis of our life. A year or so ago, I was here teaching a retreat up at the upper hall, and one of the yogis at the end of the retreat said to me, you know, I want to live this life of awareness. I don't want to live a lifestyle of retreat. And I think that's, that's right from all of us. 
Well, we like to go on retreat, and it's nice to get away for a week or two a year or a weekend or whatever every so often. That's great. But we're not looking forward to a lifestyle of that. But on the other hand, we really like the benefit that we get from awareness, the, the ability to just be a little more present with ourselves and with others and to see a little deeper into our own motivations and our own source of suffering. And so we enjoy the benefit of awareness. It is through practicing or remembering and practicing the paramis that we cultivate this awareness in our household life. The understanding of the paramis in the Buddhist teachings is that they are the awareness practices for householders. Well, for everyone, but they are the awareness practice for householders. And in Burma, where I, I lived for a number of years and where the tradition of practice that we teach uh, comes from, Burma and Thailand, the understanding is that householders practice the precepts, the truthfulness, uh, generosity, living in harmony, developing all of the paramis. And to the extent that they are able to do that in our everyday domestic, civic, social, professional lives, it prepares the heart, it prepares the mind for liberating insight. So that when we then go to the monastery or go to the center like here for an an intensive training in the development of insight, the heart and the mind is well prepared. It's already been practicing non-attachment, non-aversion, and non-confusion. And when we then apply the continuity of effort to the moment-to-moment experience, truly deep and liberating insight can arise. In Burma, in the monastery where I stayed, it was a monastery. It was a meditation center that was established for lay people, expecting that lay that lay people like ourselves would practice the paramis for ten months a year and annually come to the retreat for two months. And in Burma, they, they have a summer holiday where the whole place shuts down for at least a month, and uh, from children, uh, from the time of thirteen. Uh, when they just uh, start their teenage years, until they finish university at 21 or so, uh, every year would come to the meditation center where I was staying for two months of practice. Fantastic. Imagine, you know, from 13 to 21, you get two months of practice every year, and then you begin your career and your family, and that's being well prepared for, well, the challenges that we all face in, in raising our families and providing for ourselves and our families. My wife, Kamala, she was a single mom of three kids at the time that she first came in contact with the Dharma. And so going to a retreat was not an option. And yet, because of her need, really, for uh, some strength of mind, she practiced at home. And her practice and her teacher came to the her teacher Manindra came to her home and, and taught her how to wash the dishes mindfully, how to sweep the floor mindfully, how to fold the clothes mindfully, how to iron your clothes mindfully. 
And that's the practice that she did for many years. So that when she got the opportunity, when they were teenagers, when she got the opportunity to take a month-long retreat, having made their frozen lunches and dinners, put them in the freezer for a month, then she was able to, to practice Vipassana and achieve states of uh, concentration and some degree of Vipassana knowledge and liberation that was, well, extraordinary. It's not beyond us. It's, it's, not, it's not beyond any one of you in the room to, to really practice in a way that is uh, liberating. It takes development of the heart and mind by cultivating the paramis, and then periodic and regular uh, intensive training of uh, insight. It's possible. All of these paramis are practices of letting go. It's quite obvious when we think of practicing generosity. It's clear we're letting go of something. We're letting go of some material goods, or we're letting go of some time, or we're letting go of some knowledge, being generous with others. When we practice right speech, right action, you know, morality, it's clear that we're giving up and letting go of behaviors that harm others. When we practice renunciation, well, renunciation is all about letting go. I want to speak about renunciation. I want to speak about letting go because when I say the word renunciation, do you immediately think, yeah, that'd be a good thing to do? <laughs> not, not so often. So let me, let me just add, you know, when we, when we want to think of someone who's generous, we can think of someone who's generous. When we want to think of someone who's you know, really truthful, has a commitment to the truth, we can find some historical people. When you want to think of someone, a contemporary Western icon of renunciation. I'm open to suggestions. It's not clear that renunciation is valued in our society and culture. You know, and we think, well, maybe a couple centuries ago, Henry David Thoreau, he kind of renounced and maybe Justice Souter, who retired from the Supreme Court, kind of a still a simple New Englander, is kind of practiced renunciation. Uh, that's not many. And yet, every one of us, I think, has touched or has seen the, I, I call it the, like the archetype of the renunciate within us. You know, when you just get that feeling like, the treadmill is just, get me off this treadmill, right? You know, let me, let me just step out of the momentum, the fast lane, for a while. Let me give it up. That's renunciation. Renunciation is not always painful, ascetic, you know, uh, just a, a severe imposition of denial and doing without. We've all experienced a lot of renunciation, and it's been beneficial, The Buddha said of renunciation, If by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then those who are wise pursue the happiness which is greater. 
So you got a happiness. You got some happiness doing this, doing that. If if you knew that giving that up would bring you more happiness, a greater happiness, would you do it? There was a famous experiment done with little kids torturing those little kids. You know, some psychologist was doing a doing a, an exam. This is many many years ago, maybe thirty or forty years ago now. So they, they got these little kids, they had them in a room, and the tester would come in and give them all a candy bar. And he would say to them, here's a candy bar, you can have it, you can eat it, it's yours. I'm going to go away for uh, a few minutes, and when I come back, if you still have the candy bar uneaten, I'll give you another one. But if you've eaten it, I won't give you another one. Whereupon, the tester would leave the room, close the door, turn around, and watch the kids through the one-way mirror. And, of course, there's some kids, uh, they just go, I want the candy bar. Peel that thing, eat it. There. Got it. I enjoyed that. Thank you. And then there's some that just take that candy bar, set it aside, and just wait. Because they know they want two. But evidently, the vast majority of them hold the candy bar, look at it, smell it, maybe peel the wrapper, lick it, do this, just tormented. (laughs) They want that candy bar now, and they want two. Well, you know what? We are faced with this option many times every day. We have this option. We have this choice every day, many times, to give up that which is a source of happiness, but a source of a minor happiness. Dilgo Kinsey Rimshi, a great teacher from the Tibetan tradition in the last century, said, Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from the immediate sorrows of life, but from the seemingly unending treadmill of life. With this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Have we ever felt that? It's like more struggle, striving, treadmill, Racing for what? A little more recognition, a little more status, a little more pleasure, a little more... And it's, well, we know, it's just not that satisfying. Momentarily, yes. But in the long run, it just doesn't offer all that it's held out to be. Can we give it up? Can we let go of a little in order to get something even greater? friend of mine came to help at the end of a retreat on Maui. When we have a retreat on Maui, we have a lot of uh, uh, retreat equipment, cushions, kitchen equipment, bells, whistles, you know, Buddhas, all, all kinds of things that we have to take over to the rented facility, set it up, have the retreat. At the end of the retreat, pack it all up again, take it home, put it in a storage room until the next retreat. So we always ask the local Sangha to come, Sangha members to come help us. Well, at the end of one retreat a few years ago. At the end of the day, we'd gotten everything 
packed away and put in the storage room. And I looked around to see if there's anything left. And I saw a box of kitchen supplies over there. So I went over to the box and I picked up something from the box. And I said to my friend Duke, who had helped me uh, put things away, I said, Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, chocolate chipless, chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> and he said, there are some things in life I can do without. And that's a question we all should ask ourselves regularly. What in life can we do without? And what can we do quite well without? What is it that we are still carrying around as baggage from our youth, from our early adult years, that is just no longer serving our highest aspiration. You remember that toy you used to have as a kid? A doll, a ball, a musical instrument, a friend, something that was just the source of your happiness, the source of your joy, what you spent your time with and just wanted to do or be with Endlessly, obsessively, that was such a, a joy and a source of happiness to you. Where is it now? Maybe it's in the cellar or the attic, but it's not in your heart. It just, well, we could say, oh, I outgrew it. It no longer serves to bring happiness. We still might have it, though. And we haven't stopped growing. You know, just just because we hit adult years and maybe have families and maybe even retired doesn't mean that we've stopped growing. We're still growing. What is it that we've outgrown in our life? Now you've found the Dharma. You, 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 You have some interest in the Dharma. You have some interest in awareness and the teachings of the Buddha or at least, you know, calming the mind or or disentangling the mind, and and you have some appreciation of it, enough to come to an event like this. What baggage are you still carrying from earlier in your life which is not supporting your aspiration to free yourself or to calm down or to liberate your mind? We all carry around old acquaintances, old beliefs, old political affiliations, old stuff, old behaviors, old misbehaviors, stuff that we still do, we still engage in, we still, you know, just out of habit. Not because it's of any value to us, but it's just, well, we just haven't recognized that we've outgrown it. my earlier years I guess every year was earlier but anyway in my earlier years I used to be a deadhead and of course you know when the dead played so die and wherever they went I tried to go and it was just very satisfying I guess from what I remember of it <laughs> but anyway it was it was very it was a lot of fun and so 
after some years of that, I got involved in the Dharma. And I started doing retreats. And lo and behold, after a couple of years of practicing the Dharma, this amazing conjunction of conditions. I was going on a two-week retreat, 14 days of silence and stillness and clearing the mind and cleaning out, the last day of which the Grateful Dead were playing just an hour away. <laughs> hey, cool. What could be better? Calm down, clear out, open up, get really sensitive, go to a show. <laughs> it was unbearable. It was so loud and so intense. It was just torture. What I realized then was, I can't really say I outgrew them, but I come to value something else. Silence, stillness, more sensitivity. I still appreciate their music, but I didn't recognize that I had kind of let go. It wasn't the source of the fulfillment, the happiness. So something else had come into my life that was, well, more important. And so when I saw that, I realized that there were other things in my life that were, what, keeping me from really fulfilling my aspirations in practice or in pursuing what was now more important to me, more valuable to me in my life. And so it took some conscious uh, moving away from behaviors, acquaintances, things that just did no, no longer served the direction in which I was going. But if we don't look, we won't see what those are. And this is why we practice awareness training. To look, to really look into our life and see the behaviors, beliefs, um, people that just, well, you know, they're not calling forth the best that's within you. Can we let them go? Not out of anger. Not out of, you know, fear. Not out, but just out of recognizing these are not serving me. And turn away and move towards that which is more, uh, well, a source of greater happiness. Can we let go of the lesser happiness for a greater happiness, a more enduring happiness, the qualities of mind that will support us in the most interesting and challenging times of our life. If we think about it, these qualities of mind, these qualities of heart are invaluable. And you can't buy them. And you can't borrow them. And nobody can give them to you. We can only cultivate them through our own activity, our own behaviors of mind, our own training of our own mind. And that's the greater happiness 
the security, the, the reliability of an unwavering heart, a truthful, energetic, generous, loving, compassionate, understanding life, uh, heart of integrity. It's our choice. We each have that choice. We make decisions every day that either support it or undermine it. Mindfulness is to remember this is something we value and to see when we have the choice and to make the choice that supports greater happiness, greater endurance, greater resilience, greater awareness in our life. And as I mentioned, you don't need to go to a monastery. You don't need to live in a cave. You don't have to go to Asia. Stand at the kitchen sink. You know, practice patience with your kids, your partner. There's an opportunity to develop <laughs> something that's not yet developed in your life. But that's the, that's the area of work. That's the area of spiritual practice, if you will, for householders like ourselves, is to really take every opportunity. You know, it's not, it's not that there are problems in our life. Every problem or every situation that looks like a problem from one perspective looks like an opportunity from another. And it's from that perspective where we're willing to cultivate these qualities of heart and mind. Generosity, truthfulness, equanimity, understanding, loving kindness, patience. They're free. They just cost your interest, your energy, your commitment. So look into the Addicts of your of your life. Let go of that which you know we say dung it out. You know, just let it go. And acknowledge to yourself, really honestly, where do you want to go in life? We have this life, we have a few more years, maybe. None of us know for sure. Where is it you want to go? What is it you want to to do with your life? We've done a lot. We've sought a lot. We've gained a lot. We've consumed a lot. We've enjoyed a lot. What's left to do? Really? Only you can answer that by looking deeply within your own heart and seeing where the source of unhappiness is, discontentment is, and then seeing the other side of it, seeing where the happiness is, seeing where the greater um, fulfillment is, and then heading in that direction. There will be challenges, opportunities, I should say, and there will need to be a lot of... uh, well, mid-course corrections. You know the, the space shuttle that they send up from Florida? They send up to the space station. You know, it takes off, it goes up, and it takes a few days to get there. It said that, you know, the, the space shuttle is off course 98% of the time. <laughs> off course. And yet, it still gets there. How's that happen? Well, innumerable mid-course corrections. 
our practice is like that. It's off course, about 98% of the time. You know, we try to be mindful, we try to be aware, we try to be patient, we try to be generous, we try to be loving, we try to be understanding. We fail miserably and still reach the goal. That's our path. That's our practice. That's the guarantee, really, that if you make the effort, if you fulfill the causes, the results will happen. And you'll have the strength of mind to endure with gratitude, joy, resilience, the next tsunami in your life. (laughs) On that note... Thank you. What a cue. <laughs> so, um, I think there's a few minutes for questions. If if anyone has a question, question they'd like to ask or a comment they'd like to make about anything I've said or didn't say. Yeah. The idea of renunciation um, is very interesting. I have a, a twelve-step. Um, life background, and I believe that that 12 Steps does offer that opportunity for the ones who specifically are attached to whatever the behavior is, the alcohol, the drugs, you know, that the 12 Steps definitely offer the ability to renunciate, to be a renunciate, and and to attain and strive to that higher happiness and good. Yeah, I, I, I agree. 12 Step programs, great. It really values uh, renunciation and uh, restraint and renunciation, and it works. That's right. I encourage any of you that have any obsessive or addictive or compulsive behavior. Does anybody not have obsessive, compulsive, (laughs) or addictive behavior? We all do. But, uh, you know, deal with it with mindfulness or find a 12-step. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Any other? Yeah, over here. Either one. Thank you. It's very timely. Um, August is my birthday month, and I had just um, um, told some of my close friends that I will take a month off, everyone. And you'll, take it, you'll give everyone a I, month I'm off? I'm having a monk month. <laughs> You're having a monk month. I will go to work, but um, outside of work uh, conversations, yeah. um, I had a, this is a self, self-choice that I just am going to stop in my usual hobbies, my usual lifestyle choices. Mm. Not to say they're negative in any way, but mm. I just want to take a break from people I talk to on a daily basis yeah. so I'm, I'm, I've just informed my closest friends and of course I'm going to put it on Facebook status <laughs> <laughs> not, not responding email not responding and don't take it personal offense yeah. um, but uh, I was looking in the bookstore wondering looking for a sense of direction how to yeah. support that I've never yeah. done it before yeah. I've only done one day retreats never even done weekly retreats yeah. Yeah. do you have any suggestion as yeah. to in home Renunciation. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just do it. You know, uh, you know, I do home retreat myself. Uh, you know, practice at home, and it's really interesting to to kind of get out of a retreat schedule. You know, you don't do the formal sitting, walking, uh, forty-five minutes, forty-five minutes. But you know, when you're sitting, whether it's at the dining room table, or at the living room couch, or, the, or on the toilet, that's sitting. Pay attention. <laughs> Right? When you're walking, whether it's walking formally on the deck or in the driveway 
or from your kitchen to the bedroom. That's walking. Oh, bring awareness to that. So that any activity is is can be uh, the time for practicing awareness. You know, don't don't be hard on yourself. You know, but but be continuous. It is the continuity of your awareness that really uh, makes uh, will will show you the value of doing that. And before you go, give me your name and address. I want to send you a book. Yeah, another comment? I was wondering about a country like Burma, huh? where I think it's 90% of the people are Buddhist yeah. or sure. spiritually practicing and oriented sure. and go to retreats and so on. And still, with 90%, has a government that is horrendous, that keeps the woman that we love, I forget her name. The lady, Aung San Suu Kyi. In in her home forever, perhaps. I I don't get the connection. Well, you know, this country... lack of connection. This country is uh, very, uh, you know, Christian and uh, Jewish and, you know, uh, very tolerant of religious... Uh, all, all, all spiritual religious traditions. But sometimes we don't act the way that we speak. Huh? Sometimes we can't walk our talk. So too in Burma. You know, the generals may be Buddhist and they, you know, they go to the monastery and they do the, you know, their bows and they offer robes to the monks and, and, and so on. But they do other things. They don't live a life of integrity, Maybe. Some, some do, some don't. So we can't, we can't really kind of fix them. We can only look in our own heart, our own mind. Am I living a life of integrity? Am I really walking my talk? Huh? So maybe they need some anger, so that they can make mm. some changes. Uh, they've had plenty of anger. And I'm not sure that anger's uh, the the. Or at least it's not anger. Yeah. The anguish could move them into making a change. I think awareness, awareness would move them into making a change. But how to get them to be more aware is a challenge. But same, same for us. Do you do, you do something just because somebody gets angry at you? Well, somebody says, hey, you could make your life better. You Get on with it. You know, I'm getting angry at you. Maybe your partner says that. You know, you know if you did this, I'd be happier. You know, do you do it? No. That's <laughs> like, you know, anger is not a very good motivator. So, you know, to to really know what is a good motivator to to, to move people, you have to un- understand your own. What motivates you to walk your talk, to step up to the plate, to do, take on a little more. So, practicing awareness, then you'll understand the generals. Yeah, another comment. Uh, I enjoyed your talk very much. Um, I've discovered that trying to perfect those things. Actually, the outcomes that I get in my life are much better. Um, the results of my relationships and everything are better, and I would even say that would be true on a political level, because when you donate your intention to a cause, it has a very generally very positive effect. I just wanted yeah. to add that. 
Yeah, I, I, I will second that. That uh, you know, if we make the effort with sincerity and as much compassion and wisdom as we have, uh, the results are always beneficial to us in our own heart. Sometimes we don't accomplish what we set out to accomplish because we can't control all the conditions. But at least in our own heart, we'll know that we've done the best we can, and that's a source of uh, great happiness or contentment or a sense of fulfillment and purposefulness in life. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, meditation. The the challenge of settling down. Um, I can't think how. I, I did treats, but it's been at least ten years. I can't remember how we meant to address that restlessness and that anxiety or that general scatteredness to penetrate through there to even get to the place where. It's pleasant. Don't. Don't try to calm down. Don't, 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 don't try to penetrate that to get to a place that's calm. Be aware of anxiety. Be aware of restlessness. Be aware of you know, the fast pace of stuff in your life and in your mind. You know, if you try to, you know, if, I'm sure you've all tried to, calm down by focusing on the breath. Right? You know, I mean, that, that, that's meditation. Focus on the breath. Calm down. <laughs> Good luck. Sometimes it works, of course. Of course, sometimes it works. You know, but sometimes, a lot of times it doesn't, as is testimonial from this fellow. So, what we're trying to do is not calm down so much as be aware. Really, if we could be aware of the restlessness in our mind, if we could be aware of the cause of anxiety in our heart, if we could be aware of the source of anger in our heart, that's really what we want to know. Right? Life is fast. You know, no matter how fast you go, your mind is always there. You can't outrun your mind. So, learn to recognize your mind. If it's anxious, know that you're anxious. If it's calm, know that you're calm. If you're frustrated, know that you're frustrated. If you're upset, know that you're upset. That's all that it takes. <laughs> really. That's, that's the kind of teaching that Saito Utejaniya offers. You know? Don't try to focus and calm down. It's just going to make you miserable. But instead, instead, learn to recognize what's actually going on. Be aware of this now. And in time, when you stop struggling with the way things are, then you'll see, oh, you're calmed down. One more comment? Was there someone over there? Okay. Last comment, question. Here comes the microphone. Here it comes. Wait for the talking stick. (laughs) Okay. Metta, everybody. Um, I'm just finding that I'm really, really... My energy is so attached, like constipated, you know, and and that's what I'm noticing, and I don't like it. Your, Your energy is what? Sort of like very attached, you know, like I'm very attached to something that, it's like anticipatory anxiety, kind of. Like, I'm attached that something's going to happen. But the energy is like, it's so, you know, attached. Mm. is like so tense, you know. So along with what you're saying is just noticing that. Mm. And that's it, right? Uh, I I guarantee something's going to (laughs) happen. Really, <laughs> I can predict it with 100% accuracy. Well, maybe I'll go Something's to the bathroom, happen. you know. 
But what, what I hear you saying is, you know, you're kind of anticipating or you're a little bit anxious about it, a little bit fearful about it. You've got to deal with fear. You've got to deal with anxiety. You can be sure something's going to happen. It's going to be bad. Right, exactly. Think of it. Think exactly. of it. It's going to be worse than you can imagine. Exactly. I know it. I know but it aw- in my mind, but... But awareness will re- re- relieve you of all of that fear, all that anxiety, all that anticipation. Awareness of what? Are you afraid? Yes. Be aware of fear. Okay. I no. am. Just, just, I'm going to take this as an example just to wrap up. Some people are afraid of snakes. Some people are afraid of fear. Some people are afraid of the future. Some people are afraid of remembering the past. Some people are afraid of other people. Some people are afraid of public speaking. Right? You know, and you all got your own fears. All fear is the same. There's one fear. And it feels like this. Fear. If you could see, if you could take your awareness and steady it to feel and really come to know the nature of fear. Really know the nature. Oh, this is fear. This is what fear feels like. This is what it does to the body. This is what it does to the mind. And you see it come to an end. You have conquered every fear. Not just one. Every fear. Because the next time you feel fear, same feeling. Maybe it's a different person. Maybe it's a different situation. Maybe it's a different scenario. But still fear. You know how to deal with fear. Learning the nature of fear through direct and immediate awareness frees you from all fears. Learning the nature of desire for cake or anything else you could desire. (laughs) Same. What's the nature of desire? Learn the nature of desire through awareness. Doubt. Doubt. Learn the nature of doubt through awareness. Once you do, no more doubt. No more desire. No more fear. No more anxiety. That's why we practice awareness. To learn the nature of these qualities. These qualities are generic. You put the, anybody in a certain situation with certain conditions and causes and conditions, boom, fear is going to arise. And everybody, nobody's immune until you understand the nature of fear or the nature of desire, the nature of restlessness, the nature of anxiety, the nature of panic. When you do, then you, can, you know from your own experience this can be dealt with. This can be dealt with. It has a lot of confidence, a lot of steadiness of mind, a lot of confidence comes from that. Then you don't fear the future. Tsunami comes, no problem. <laughs> Maybe it wipes out everything you've got. So what? You weren't hanging on to it anyway. Really. It takes practice. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing, practicing. Come here, practice for 45, 45 minutes a week. Or, you know, take a month. Practice for a couple hours a day. I tell you, two hours a day, if you, if you can practice cumulative about two hours a day, it'll really change your life. You can practice two one hours, or you can practice four <laughs> half hours, or you can practice eight, 15 minutes, or you can practice 120 minutes. You know, just for one minute, but 120 times? That'd be really good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.